Five, you can pick it up with me, and uh, we're moving along. Yesterday, uh, Kimo mentioned that we were at the Converge Conference, and it was incredible um, just to hear the vision and passion of what Converge uh, intends to do here in America, but also internationally. And um, we had the, the pleasure, uh, as Osterville, we were sitting around tables, and we got to sit with the president of Converge, Scott Rideout, and... Um, he asked us a question. He said, what are you guys excited about? What's, what are you most excited about in your church? And uh, we went around the table and talked about a couple of things we're really excited about. But then, you know, I'm kind of one of those people that likes to poke back. So I said, what are you most excited about, Scott? And um, he said the thing that he was most excited about right now with Converge is they have a vision to plant 5 million churches in the next 10 years. Uh, around the world, uh, not just here in America. And church planning is kind of a big deal. They said that uh, only recently we've just, here in the American context, planted more evangelical churches than we're closing um, in a single year. So 3,700 churches close every year. They've planted 4,000 last year. So I was thankful for that, but that's not enough. We need more. Uh, and we certainly need churches in the world where the gospel has never been preached before. So they have already planted 1.2 million of these micro-churches micro as they're going towards that goal of 5 million. I was really excited to hear that. Thank God that we're a part of an organization that gets it and is moving towards the right things. So let's pick up our Bibles. Now, before we get into the, the text... Um, I've been watching the events, I'm sure you have, of Hurricane Michael and just the, the devastation. It's almost bewildering, isn't it? These storms that come through, they're super storms, the magnitude, the intensity of them. Uh, they say that a storm like this, when it makes landfall, um, and this one was wild as it developed, it began two days out uh, from land as a Category 2 storm, or actually one day out, and it in 24 hours' time, picked up such intensity that it was a Category 5. Now, a storm at Category 2 is potentially catastrophic. When it moves to Category 5, it is overwhelmingly devastating. And we saw this take place as 150-mile-per-hour winds hit Mexico Beach and Panama Beach. And, um, you know, the loss, the devastation of this, uh, you think of the wealth that accrues around the coasts, the construction, the building, all wiped out. But all of that pales in comparison to even the loss of a single human life because people were created in the image of God. No matter how much we get better at tracking, no matter how much we grow in knowledge and sophistication, we're never going to be omniscient when it comes to a storm's path and power. And, uh, I'll tell you, you sometimes wonder and question, how many sirens do they have to sound off? How many warnings do they have to give to get people to leave these regions? I know with Michael, it came on too quickly, but boy, there's a lot of storms where people just stay and try to ride it out. Now, what do we learn from something like this? Well, I'd say one lesson is that the human footprint's a lot smaller than we realize. We tend to think of the human population and the global impact of humanity. And it's really big. It's significant. But when you compare it 
to a storm, to 150 mile per hour winds and torrential downpours and 16 foot surges of water. We're small. We're small. And we're also coming aware of, when we see things like this, our own mortality. You see, it's in moments like this that we realize that we're not eternal, at least in this life. We're not going to keep just going on and on and on. There will be a moment where we will meet our maker. I recently was in a store and one of the employees came over to me privately and just said, hey, I hear that you're a pastor. And I said, yes, I am. And Well, I'm thinking I need to get into church. Well, great. Came to the right person. I got a great church to tell you about. So we talked a little bit about church. And, you know, I just said to myself, all right, I got to make it a point to go back and see this person. So yesterday I go back into the store and only to find out that the same individual's in the ICU now, hanging on with the last shreds of life. But that's reality, isn't it? Moses wisely observed in Psalm 90.10 that life is brief. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So he led into this prayer then in the psalm in verse 12. He said, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It may sound morbid, but I wish that we'd keep maybe a little time glass next to our bedside or a calendar where we count the days backwards. So that we would understand the scope of our life, the length, the breadth of it. It was in Ecclesiastes that Solomon said, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Don't listen to the conventional wisdom that says don't think about the end. Don't worry about it as you're making your decisions today. Uh, they said a couple years back when I was in youth ministry, YOLO, you only live once. That's true. But Solomon says, it's better to think about your funeral than the next party. So as you think about your funeral, you have to ask yourself the question, how do I want to be remembered? Uh, do I want people there populating the room and what are they going to say about me? But more importantly than what are they going to say about you at your funeral, what are they going to say about you in eternity about the life you lived? So we look at this passage in Genesis 25. We're going to read the accounts of the death of a giant. You see Abraham, by the grace of God, by the power of God, he was a stalwart of the faith he lived that unconventional life of faith. He was a giant. And he lived a life that was well lived up into and including his final moments. So the question we're going to be asking ourselves is, how do I live well so that I finish well? Let's read the first four verses. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. 
So here you have uh, a situation. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those sports movies where the high school team pulls it together. They were the underdogs, and, and they get a good coach, and, and everybody plays upon their individual strengths, and they make it all the way to the championship game. They, they, they achieve a feat that no one thought was possible for them. I love that movie, Coach Carter, where they do that. And... Uh, you look at the end and there's this sequence at the end where they take uh, a picture of where they are today. Uh, what happened to these people? What happened to their life? And that's what we're getting here, a glimpse of Abraham after all of these amazing events of his life of faith and he's living a full life. In the last 38 years of his life, he has six children. God was not kidding when he said this guy was going to have multitudes, right? And it seems like any child that this guy produces becomes a nation. And so these children go out and uh, these six will head out east and they will become the descendants in the region of Syria there. Bruce Walke, he's an Old Testament and Hebrew scholar. Uh, he's worked with Dallas Theological Seminary Reform theological, those things might mean nothing to you, but they're important, trust me. And he said this observation about the list of names in this chapter. He said, the, attesta uh, the attestation of many of these names in ancient, not modern, written sources inferentially help establish that other events in the Abraham narrative occurred in real history. Furthermore, this genealogy seems to be ancient. Essentially, this is what he's saying. You can take God's word at face valuable. This is a reliable historical document. It's not some kind of fanciful myth that's been put together. And you look back in history and you see that. So with so many sons listed, Abraham would have to ensure the next steps for the next generations. Who would receive the inheritance? Who would be the promised son? He would have to arrange things so that it was clear that it is Isaac. And that's what we see happen in verses 5 and 6. He says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Now, I find that when we read this in our modern context, it's kind of rough, right, to think of sons being sent away from the father. You have to remember, people didn't always do things the way we do things. I mean, imagine that, doing things differently. We tend to, when we divide out a will, um, we would have an executor of a will. All the children in the family would get equal distribution. And if it doesn't go like that, then we get salty, right? But in Abraham's day, the oldest son would receive the lion's share of the portion. And it was his responsibility then to lead the family moving forward. Now, in the case of this story that we've been looking at, Abraham's situation is a little different. He has a son who is a son of promise and six children from a different mother. Now, just imagine what could go wrong there. You know what could go wrong. And so he sends them. He wants to keep the peace. He wants to make sure that there will be no infighting or conflict. He gives Isaac the inheritance. He gives these six sons gifts, and they go off. And they're doing pretty well as they go off. You see, what Abraham's doing here is what we call 
succession planning. A succession plan is the process of identifying and developing the next generation of leaders to replace you when you leave, retire, or die. Why is it necessary? Well, we've already kind of talked about it, haven't we? One more time, news flash, big blinking lights. You're not going to live in this present life forever. 70 years, maybe 80, right? So there will be a time when you will no longer be here. It could be today, it could be tomorrow. Lord willing, it'll be 50 years from now. But even at 50 years, when you consider just the age of, of humanity, that's not a long time. It's short. And God's work still needs to continue, doesn't it? So Abraham understood this, and he worked to create that plan for Isaac. Let me ask you a question. Do you want the footprints of your life to be temporary? You know, like here in Cape Cod when we're walking out on the beach and we see the footprints behind us, the tide comes up and and washes them away. Do you want that to be the impact of your life or or are you working towards something that is a little more eternal? Footprints that will last. Footprints that in the annals of history and eternity people will remember. And I have to tell you the only way to effectively do that in this life is to pass the baton of faith on to another person. Now, one of the enemies of that process happens to be comfort and complacency. Things that can happen as you're pursuing the American dream. I was recently looking at some history and track and field as you think of passing the baton, you think of relay races. And in 2008, the Beijing Olympics, there was a track team where I believe fell susceptible to comfort and complacency. One of the writers, uh, former writers for ESPN, Pat Ford, stated plainly, the two baton flops by the U.S. men's and women's 4x100 relay team sent the message loud and clear, U.S. track and field has hit rock bottom. And what ended up happening in this situation was it seems like they didn't understand kind of one of the primary principles of track and field, that the baton pass, as many people know, is crucial. You mess up the baton pass, it doesn't matter how good of a team you are, you don't advance to the next step. And so here you have a team that broke a record, but not in the right way. You see, the last time the women's team didn't make it into the finals in U.S. or in Olympic history was 1948. The men, only two times have not made it into the finals, 1912, 1988. This was a big deal, a big blunder. But even as big of a deal as this is, to not pass the baton in the Christian life is a bigger deal. Paul writes to us in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says that we have treasure, this treasure in clay jars. Now, the, the treasure is the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's eternally precious. The best thing that you can offer another person in this world. And the clay jar happens to be our frail and feeble bodies. So when you think about it, there are billions of people around the world that don't have a relationship with Jesus. But what happens to those that live even beyond them? Because if you look at the population statistics, there's only going to be more people 
And if you're not passing the baton of faith, those people won't have that precious treasure that you have. So how do you pass it? Well, the key word is discipling. Paul describes this in 2 Timothy 2.2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's how the faithful follower of Christ thinks. They're not just thinking about their own personal growth. They're not even thinking about the, the person that they're discipling. They're thinking about generations on down the line. I've said this to you as parents. Your goal in parenting your children is not to just get them across that, that line of faith so that they trust Jesus. I think we've been giving our children too small of a vision of the Christian life. It needs to be bigger than that. They need to want to grow up not just to be a Christian, but a discipler of Christians so that they would want to teach their, your grandchildren how to raise their children in the Lord. We need to move past that thought process of I'm just getting people over the line. I have to have a succession plan. Mark Dever said these words that have stayed with me. For me, discipling is the only way I can evangelize non-Christians and equip Christians in that one place that I could never travel the future beyond my life. And, And he refers to discipleship ministry as planting time bombs of grace. Isn't that awesome? You're discipling someone in this moment, 20 years down the road, time bomb of grace, they lead someone else to Christ. You can't go there, but they can. I'm going to take you back to high school math for a moment. You might have some PTSD flashbacks. I get it. I want you to look at this inverse proportion graph. As you think of a normal life of faith and growth in Christ, early on in your walk with Christ, most of your time should be spent growing personally, getting into God's Word, spiritual disciplines, prayer, uh, being involved in a small group and having someone help bring you along, one-on-one mentorship where you're receiving from someone else. But as you grow in Christ, as years start ticking by, the amount of output energy that you're putting into your personal growth needs to start shifting into the development of another person, leading the small group, being the one who is mentoring someone else, teaching others how to grow in the faith. You might recall that I said earlier in Genesis that too often Christians kind of only absorb the blessings of God. But we need to be dispensers of the blessings of God because what happens to the sponge when the water stays in it too long? It's stagnant. And no one likes a stagnant Christian. Not even other Christians. Friends, that's how we pass the baton. We learn to follow Jesus, share Jesus with others. We teach them to do the same. You think to yourself, well, I can never do that. I can never disciple someone else. I'm not a seminarian. I'm not a superstar Christian like uh, Chemo Baker over here. Well, friend, you don't have to be a seminarian. You don't have to be a superstar. Jesus chose fishermen to advance the gospel. 
It becomes a lot more intuitive when you think of it in terms of, I need to teach someone to read the Bible like I've learned to read the Bible and to pray like I've learned to pray and and to tell other people about Jesus like I've learned to tell other people about Jesus. You don't have to keep waiting. You don't need someone to tell you, go ahead and start doing this. And if you're sitting there saying to yourself, well, no one ever taught me how to do those things, I'm sorry. There there might have been a gap. Doesn't matter. Get in the game. Start figuring it out. We all play at life with a deck of cards that was handed to us, but let's play the best we can with the cards we have and move forward. Are you working to hand the baton or are you in the act of dropping it? I don't know about you, but I don't want to be remembered in eternity as the 2008 Olympic Beijing team. I want to be like Abraham. I want to pass it on to Isaac. As we move forward, we read of the death of Abraham in verses 7 through 10. The text says, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron and the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. So when you look there at verse 8, I like the New Living Translation, how it captures it. And he died at a ripe old age, having lived a long life, a satisfying life. How many people can say that? I love that. He lived a satisfying life. How many people are laying on their deathbed saying, I lived a satisfying life? Not many. In fact, oftentimes on the deathbed, people look back at their life and there's a list of regrets and remorse. What if, or I wish, I wish, I wish I had invested more in my, my family. I wish that I had understood just how significant Spiritual things are in the moments of life when I was caught up in everything else and I was, I was missing the boat. I wish that I had invested in somebody else. I wish. Peter Lynch, who is widely regarded as one of the best investors in history, said these words, no one on his deathbed ever said, I wish I spent more time in the office. And don't get me wrong. Work is worthy, it's God-ordained, but it's not everything. I don't want to look back at my life and, and have a, a list of I wishes. I want to be like the Apostle Paul who says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I want my kids to say, Dad wasn't perfect but he was the same man at home as he was at church, and he loved Jesus. I want people to be at my funeral who were there because I impacted them for eternal things in their life. I don't have to be the next Billy Graham. 
I don't even have to be known by many. Just people in my sphere of influence. But I don't want a list of I wishes. It's not just enough to say I don't want something. There also must be something that you want more than the distractions that you're dealing with today. You see, what moves a person in the life of faith, this unconventional life, to find satisfaction in it, we have noted, is a confidence in God's leading and in God's eternal promises. And I want you to hone in on that key word there, eternal. You see, these aren't time-sensitive. They're not contingent promises. They are eternal. The author of Genesis reminds us of this principle in verse 8. He speaks of Abraham being gathered to his people. Now that's an important phrase in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. It's only used there. Uh, You tend to think of that phrase, being gathered to their people, as they were buried in the tomb with all of their other ancestors. But as you read this story, number one, Abraham is not buried with his other ancestors. It's him and Sarah. And the timing of being gathered to the people is between the death and the burial itself. One Old Testament scholar, a Jewish scholar, says this, It would seem, therefore, that the existence of this idiom testifies to a belief that despite his mortality and perishability, man possesses an immortal element that survives the loss of life. Death is looked upon as a transition to an afterlife where one is united with one's ancestors. So it's looking beyond, isn't it? There's a story in the New Testament. Maybe you are familiar with it. Maybe you're not. Uh, Jesus is confronted by the Sadducees. They're this spiritual elite, spiritual ruling class. They know the Bible really well and they also hate Jesus quite a bit. And so one of their goals is to entrap him in a question. So they concoct this elaborate, insane, hypothetical situation that wouldn't happen to anybody. They say this, Teacher, Moses wrote uh, for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And, you know, we're tracking with these guys right here, okay? Yes, that's what the Bible says. That's part of the law. Great. But then they go on. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven, all of them die and leave no offspring. Last of all, she dies. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? I mean, talk about like the worst story in human history. I mean, like everybody dies in it. It's one of those classic gotcha moments. Jesus, I have this impossible situation that can never happen, therefore it proves my point right. You know, you, you ever seen someone argue like that? You know, if puppy dogs were born in Mars and bubble tents, therefore I'm right. No, they're not born in bubble tents on Mars, and that's not going to, I mean, it could happen, but it's not going to happen right now. Are you kidding me? Well, Jesus doesn't take the bait. He turns the argument. He says, 
Is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? I mean, imagine saying that to these guys, the Bible teachers of Bible teachers. You don't know the Bible. Wow. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven as for the dead being raised. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham. That's not I was, was it? I am, present tense. And the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Friends, do you know what this means? Abraham's still alive. He's still alive today. He's not an old, dusty dinosaur in a grave. He's alive. C.S. Lewis once said, you have never talked to a mere mortal. Everybody. Everybody on this earth. All those people that lost their life in the hurricane. Those people living in the remotest part of the world that you will never know and they will never know you. That politician that you're not a huge fan of that coworker at work, the neighbor that's three houses down from you, the person in the grocery store that you kind of had a scuffle with because they got in your way and you were moving along quickly and so were they, the person driving down the road that you honked at in the road, your family members, your children, you, not mere mortals. Changes the way you look at the world, doesn't it? If we look at people and say that person is created in the image of God, they are eternal. How does that change the way I look at them? Will they die? Yes. Will you die? Yes. But there is a life beyond this life, and those who want to live well in this life must have a vision for eternity. If you envision eternity, you live better in the here and now. One of the things that frustrates me about Christians, and I'm one of them, is that we don't talk about heaven enough. We need to talk about heaven more. You know, people tend to kind of get caught up into other parts of the Bible, like that, that seven-year tribulation period and all the events that lead up to eternity, but then once you get to eternity, it just kind of shuts off like a faucet. We stop talking about it. That should be the stuff that we're dreaming about, thinking about, feeling passionate about, because that's going to be the rest of our lives. Have you thought about it? You know what the Bible has to say about it? Well, for one thing, you will be you, but you will be better than present you. Are you tracking with me there? You will be better in mind than you've ever been. Your physicality will be better than it has ever been. We can talk about this as being the ultimate upgrade package for the human body, and I am hoping beyond hope for cheetah speed and the gift of flight. I'm just saying that's what I want. Your heart, with all that brokenness that you carry, all those past hurts that have just seemed to follow you along in life will be whole will be healed and at peace. Friend, you will outlive the stars. You know, those 
measly little billion-year-old stars. Nothing compared to eternity. Revelation tells us that we will inhabit this earth, only it will not be the same earth. It will be recognizable, but it will be unimaginably better. I'm just trying to think about the trees, the animals that will populate it, what the weather is going to be like. But here's an even better thing. Human flourishing. In our most altruistic moments, the thing that we say that we wish more for anything in this world is for world peace. No more war. No more violence. No more dehumanizing acts. No more crime. No more interpersonal conflict with people because we just can't quite seem to get our act together in relationship. Heaven will be a time of eternal peace, flourishing, collaboration, doing what we were always made to do, which is worshiping God. And if you think worshiping God is something boring, like sitting up in a cloud with a harp for all of eternity, you got it wrong. It's way better than that. Worship is living eternally productive lives, holy lives, joy-filled lives because everything's connecting because we're energized by the presence of God. You were made to live like that. Can you imagine it? Can you see it? Even if you can only see it through a window that's dirty, can you look through and envision what that will be like And friend, that is yours if you have trusted Jesus. Have you trusted Jesus? If you're sitting there this morning, you're saying, I don't even know what it really means to trust Jesus. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders. We'd love to tell you about how you can trust Jesus. Eternities are built on trusting Jesus. Verse 11 tells us that God's story continues after the death of a giant. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Bir Lahai Roy. Sometimes in life we can stifle the work of God because we become convinced that God needs us. He needs me. Oh, my church... The second that I walk out these doors and don't return, boy, this place is going to be a shambles. They need me. They need my money. They need my serving. They need, Jesus needs me. I, 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 me, 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 my, me. Now, don't get me wrong. God loves you. God loves to use you. He loves to work through you but he was doing just fine before you came. And he's going to continue to do fine after you go. Even when a spiritual giant dies, God's work is unfinished because he's the one who energizes the work. He's the one who's responsible for the fulfillment of the promises. In fact, uh, we're going to start a new series, a new volume in the book of Genesis next week that I'm calling Unfinished, and uh, we're going to trace how God continues to keep his promises through the mess of Isaac, Jacob, and onward. And boy, does it get messy, but boy, God continues his work because that's what he does. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, two important principles as we think about the next steps. The first is this, don't hold the baton too long. Don't hold it too long. I've seen leaders who have held the baton 
They were incredible at what they do, but somewhere along the way, they forgot the fact that they needed to pass it on to another Christian. Now, sometimes the fastest runners get confused and think that the entire race rides on them. Think of a guy like Usain Bolt. 2009 shatters the world record, 9.58 seconds, 100-meter dash. I mean, that guy is insanely fast. I mean, look at the smile on his face as he's shattering the record. <laughs> he, he breaks, like, every conventional rule to running. You're supposed to keep your head forward, man, and you're still just smacking people. It's a go- I love it. So, at that speed, 9.58 seconds, he's running 28 miles per hour. You know how fast I run? Like, five And this guy is running 28. Now you think about a relay race with Usain Bolt in it, and boy, is it strengthened with him there. But if he tries to run that thing by himself, it's a mess, isn't it? I don't care if he runs under nine seconds. I don't care if he does the inhuman speed of 40 miles per hour. If he doesn't get that baton in a teammate's hands, he has failed the mission. He loses the race. They would have been better off with a slower runner that was better at passing the baton. The Christian life is a race, but it's a relay. 70 years, 80. Well, guess what? The gospel's been preached for 2,000 years. The promises of God go back thousands of years before that. If you take your 70 years and you just put it up next to that, you get about 2% of the time. How important do you think the baton pass is? And here's another side of that coin. Some of you need to grab the baton. You're waiting. You're thinking to yourself, well, I need to get all my ducks in the row. Once I kind of get that career set up and my family to look like that 2.5 American kid family with the white picket fence in the front of the house, then I can start living for God. Or young people, you're told you're the next generation of the church. Guess what? That's a lie. You are the church right now. We're not waiting for a next generation. God has no grandchildren. He has children. It's not when you're 25. It's not when you're 35. It's not when you're 45. It's now. And right now, the question that you will be answering for your life Who do I want to be? What do I want to do with my life? How can I make the biggest impact is always answered by God's mission. Join it. Don't wait. Don't spend the next 20 to 30 years doing things for you. Start doing things for God. Now. Grab the baton. Pass it to others. Live for Christ. Tell others about Christ. Make him the central feature of your life. First Corinthians, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Don't squander eternity and glory and the riches of, of God's next steps for you on momentary things like popularity and accolades and success and ambition. There's bigger things than that. I want you to envision your end time, your last words. There were two men, and I want us to consider their words. The first is Gandhi. 
He wrote just days before his death, all about me is darkness. I am praying for lights. By contrast, D.L. Moody, the evangelist, awoke from sleep shortly before he died and said, earth recedes, heaven opens before me. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me and I must go. His son said, no, dad, you're just dreaming here, okay? Moody replies, he's convinced. He says, I am not dreaming. I've been within the gates. This is my triumph. This is my coronation day. It is glorious. Two men, two perspectives, two outlooks on life, death, everything in between, one filled with hope, the other filled with dread. What do you want your last words to be like? Well, really, what you're doing right now is shaping what your last words will be like. Have you started writing that succession plan? Are you living with a vision for eternity? Are you trusting God with the next steps as you're winding down in the life of faith? That's how you live well to finish well. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?